to Talking With Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined as always by Chris Bougay. Hey, Chris. How's it going, Rachel? It's good. We just had an amazing session at Closing the Gap. Let's talk about it. Oh my gosh. So we did a two-day pre-conference session. The way it worked was three hours on one day, three hours on the next day. And wasn't it such a blast? I mean, it was such a good time, wasn't it? I had such a good time. I love the pre-conferences that we do because it's a smaller group, it's more intimate, and we have more time, which I feel like I'm always struggling with when I'm presenting. It's a mad dash to get to the finish line, and I always have way too much to share and not enough time, so I end up talking really fast and skipping over slides, and you know, inevitably, I think we did that too because, again, we have too much to share always, but we have the opportunity to really take a deeper dive into specific areas of challenge. Um, what's really great is that sometimes things will come up as we're you know describing a concept or teaching, and then all of a sudden, we you know kind of go down a rabbit hole um, in a good way where we open up a discussion to the group about, you know, these challenges that we all kind of face and these questions that we all um, sometimes have in the back of our heads. And so, yeah, it was no different for Closing the Gap as our other pre-conferences. And the group was amazing, super interactive, engaged, and I just loved it. Yeah, I think one of the reasons um, that it did, we did, we ended up having to cut out stuff at the end. And I think one of the reasons that was is because we added slides in for day two. We added some concepts that we weren't really thinking we were going to talk about, but sort of the group sort of led us there. And um, we thought, okay, well, let's talk about these concepts. And we put them back, we put slides in that we wouldn't ordinarily had or that we hadn't originally planned on. And that's what makes an an experience like that so fluid um, because you can be responsive to to the participants you know, and really meet their needs. And like you said, I think one of the best parts of that pre-conference was people sort of jumping in going, yeah, okay, I love what you're talking about here. Here's my specific questions on how it works in in my area, or I've been wrestling with this exact sort of thing, and can we dig, do a deeper dive into it? And then we were able to just like talk about it for a little bit longer, you know? Um, I, I, I really love the idea that uh, there isn't necessarily a start, middle, and end of a session, right? It's just a, it's a conversation that you with some talking points, you know, and that's what it really felt like to me. Yeah. And I think it's really good to frame professional development in that way, because I think it opens up for flexibility. And I mean, I don't, I don't know what other presenters do, but I feel like a lot of times there's this pressure to follow your slides and the hand down and exactly what you thought you were going to teach. And, you know, that's all fine and good, except if the audience in front of you, you know, is telling you through their questions or comments um, that they need something. It's like, that's the beautiful thing about it being live is that we can change and we can pivot and we can, you know, go down a path that we, you know, hadn't foreseen, uh, which is exactly what happened with this Closing the Gap uh, session. Um, I think it was specific to AAC assessment and how do you select a system? And we kind of did a really rich conversation about that process. And that's, you know, we added some slides and it was like, surprise, like there's new slides. And that's why we use Google slides because it can adapt and change and be flexible when we decide to change things around in the middle of our, our session. So if you were there, thank you for being there. We had such a great time meeting you and having that conversation. If you weren't there, well, it's too bad because I don't think we have anything coming up. Do we, Rachel? There's nothing. There's no. Am I forgetting something on our calendars? I'm trying to remember if there's something else people can come to that is a similar experience. Chris, we're doing it again. <laughs> we will be at ATIA in 
2022, which feels crazy. It feels like we're in the future when I say 2022. Um, <laughs> but yes, we're going to be at ATIA doing a pre-conference session. Um, same exact session, but again, it's not the same exact session because every time we present it, we present it differently based on the audience and the group that we're in front of. Uh, but even more excited because we're actually going to be doing it in person this year, um, which is really exciting for me. Um, we always talk about designing experiences uh, for professional development and how we can do that with in-person events is so different than, you know, kind of the limitations that we're stuck with when we're online. Um, so I'm really excited to be in sunny Orlando um, talking about AAC with a group of what will soon be my AAC besties. Yeah, me too. Me too. You know, I have been going to ATIA and doing pre-conferences for many years now, um, often with Beth Poss. Her and I often would uh, partner together and do pre-conferences. So I'm really excited about this. We did a pre-conference last year, but it was virtual, right? So this is going to, again, the first time. Now, you and I will have presented at ASHA at that point for an hour, but this will be like eight hours together, you know? And so that's going to be super exciting as well to have a eight hour presentation together um, with all of the people that, uh, that, that listen to this podcast that come and want to learn. It's like a, again, a deep dive into AAC to get your needs met. And it's just going to be super exciting. Yes. ATA is an awesome conference. And if you guys are planning to go, we are encouraging you to come a day early to spend with Chris and I, and we promise it'll be worth it. We promise we'll, it'll be super fun. We promise you'll learn tons and be inspired by the time you walk out. Chris, what's the date? That date is January 26th, and it's going to be from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. I mean, you get an hour lunch in there, and we'll have other breaks, but uh, but it's going to be a super fun time. So please sign up. Go check it out at atia.org. I think you can get all the information, uh, find the links and all the stuff. So um, typically at ATIA, I do lots of presentations. Luckily this year, I've only got one other presentation that I'm participating in, um, and that is on January 28th, and it's called, you ready for this? I don't think we've even talked about it. Did I tell you about this? I don't know that I told you about this. So um, it's called Cards Against Exclusivity, a feature matching game. So the way this this uh, our experience is going to work is that when you get to the room, right, I'm going to you sit at tables, and I'm going to hand out cards. So if you're familiar with apples to apples or cards against humanity, but let's just go with apples to apples, right? For this particular podcast, it works where you get cards, right? And then, so that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to hand out people with cards and on the cards are going to be different strategies, different tools, different concepts out there in the educational space. And then on the board, I'm going to display scenarios and people are going to look through their cards and say, okay, which card matches that scenario the best? What's going to be the right tool or strategy we put in place? And then they'll share what those are. We'll discuss what those different topics are, those different concepts are. And then um, I'll pick one or maybe someone there. I haven't figured out exactly if I'm going to be the judge or if I can get like some sort of special guest judge to be the people that sort of say, that's the one that wins. And uh, we're going to play for an hour Cards Against Exclusivity to build more like an inclusive mindset. It's going to be a blast. Chris, this is so on brand for you. And I love this. <laughs> you are so good at being so clever and figuring out really creative and innovative ways to teach concepts that is engaging and fun. I love it. I'm so excited. I'm coming. I want to come. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. Well, maybe you'll be my guest, um, my guest judge who, who's the one like, okay, Rachel's going to give the points, you know, so impress Rachel. Yes. I would love to be a guest judge. I'll feel like a celebrity. I'll also wear my talking with tech t-shirt. Awesome. All right. So we'll see you there at ATIA. So what is our interview today? Chris, I, 
I am so excited for this interview. Like, I can't even explain how necessary this interview is to listen to. Um, I interviewed Alexandria Zakos, who is becoming pretty well known in the space for gestalt language processing. So we talk all about how a a lot of autistic students are what's known as gestalt language processors. Um, And, you know, how can we teach language in a way that really thinks about how some students process language and learn language differently. Um, She really has blown my mind. And, you know, in the middle of the, the episode, I feel like she, we start kind of going down this path and, and talking about how do we know if a child, you know, isn't using verbal speech, if they're a gestalt language processor. Um, <clears throat> and so, you know, it's a really interesting concept to think about. Um, for those of you who are listening who aren't sure what gestalt language processing is, um, simply put, it's learning language in chunked phrases or scripts there's oftentimes accompanied echolalia with gestalt language processing. And um, instead of analytical processing, which is, you know, simply building a single word and then two words, um, building kind of from the ground up. And, you know, what's interesting is, you know, how do we know? How do we know for our students who aren't speaking? Because oftentimes it's easy to spot out gestalt language processors who have verbal speech because they're doing a lot of scripting. They are using a lot of echolalia. And it really is fascinating to think about, you know, we know that a high percentage of autistic students are gestalt language processors. And so really thinking through this lens um, and and finding some of the telltale signs. Um, So we talk a little bit about this in the episode, um, but thinking about, you know, kids who like to repeat the same video over and over again, maybe they're not you know, verbalizing those scripts with verbal speech, but that can be an indicator that perhaps your AAC user is a Gestalt language processor. Um, you know, of, of course, if there's verbal speech, it's pretty easy to, to spot, uh, but there's lots of things that we can do to kind of change the way that we're approaching language. Um, you know, unfortunately, we also talk about the fact that there's not uh, the technology doesn't really support this type of processing, right? Um, and the technology was designed uh, through an analytic processing lens. Um, and so what, you know, can we do, you know, within, you know, our capacity to try to support kids who are Gestalt language processors? Um, so anyway, it's a fascinating conversation. I'm really excited to share it. Ooh, I cannot wait for this one. Anything that sort of stretches the limits of what I know when it comes to uh, language processing, oh, it's super exciting. So I can't wait to listen to your interview with Alexandria Zakos. Hey there. If you love listening to this podcast, we would be so, so grateful for your support to keep it going. By becoming a Patreon member, you can not only help us cover the cost of this podcast, but you can get some really great bonus content as well. We post video tutorials, behind-the-scenes recordings, and bonus segments from our interviews. We would love for you to join us by going to patreon.com slash talkingwithtech. That's patreon.com slash talkingwithtech.
Welcome to Talking My Tech. I'm your host, Rachel Madel, joined today by Alexandria Zakos. Alexandria, I'm super excited. I wish all of our listeners could see the big smile on my face. I've been wanting you to come on the podcast for so long. Um, so you're finally here. Um, just start off by telling your listeners a little bit about yourself, and then we're going to be diving into the topic of gestalt language processing, which, like I said, I'm really excited to talk about. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here, Rachel. Um, yeah, so just a little bit about myself. I am a speech language pathologist. Um, I've been one for just about 18 years now. Um, I own a private practice in the Chicago suburbs. Um, I basically found out about Gestalt language processing about six years ago. I had quite a few kids on my caseload at the time that were communicating with Gestalts or scripts. And I honestly had no clue what to do about it. Um, I was taught back in the day in graduate school to redirect or ignore it. And all of the speech pathologists that I reached out to kind of told me the same thing. Nobody really had a clue what to do about it. Um, and so I just started digging around and I ended up seeing Marge Blanc's book posted in a Facebook group. And I read the thing cover to cover in about a week and a half and then immediately reached out to her. The rest is kind of history. Um, she and I have communicated and collaborated on several projects over the years. She has mentored me. Um, she oversaw, you know, everything that I um, did with my course on MeaningfulSpeech.com. She's even featured on there. Um, and I'm just kind of on a mission now to teach speech language pathologists and parents all about Gestalt language processing and how, how and what to do when a child is communicating with scripting. Yeah. And I, you know, I definitely read Marge's uh, work and I remember exactly where I was when I first like heard about Gestalt language, language processing. And I kind of already knew this for years, right? I was like, I know my kids are, you know, communicating with scripts. And I was really, you know, from the very start, I always kind of had the approach of taking what a child's saying and thinking like, this has to be something, right? Uh, or at least trying to search for some type of meaning behind it. Uh, but the moment we, like, I heard that label and I started reading about it, I was like, oh my gosh, this is this is changing the way that I practice. Like a hundred percent, it changes the way that I practice. And, you know, since then I've learned so much from your um, account on Instagram, actually, you guys all have to go follow her at Meaningful Speech. Um, you share such great content on there. Um, and I'm super excited to talk all about, you have a membership now and courses yeah. and all these things. So we're definitely going to talk about that. But for our listeners who are like Gestalt language processing, I have no idea what you're talking about. Um, how would you describe or define that? Absolutely. So um, a lot of us are actually taught there's only one way to develop language, and that is analytic language processing. You may or may not know that it is actually called that. But in reality, there are two ways that children can develop language. And um, there's a, a big history behind it I won't go into, but there are several, several reasons why we kind of don't hear about it as much, although there is a lot of research out there to support it that I have been sharing recently. Um, so analytic language processing is when a child starts with one word, moves on to two words, then three words, all of a sudden we've got sentences and conversation, and it's this buildup that all starts with a word as a unit. 
For a Gestalt language processor, the word is not the unit they start with. So all language development starts with units. For a Gestalt language processor, that unit is what we call a gestalt or a script. It's a chunk of language and it can look differently for different kids. And, and I talk about this a lot on my social media page, but for example, for some gestalt language processors, they are communicating with words, but they are what I call stuck gestalts. So they are unable to combine them and then move on to two to three words to a sentence. They're kind of stuck with that one word as a unit. For others, we see a lot of the movie scripting or the media scripting, things like to infinity and beyond are being used to communicate with others. Um, that's usually the kind that most people hear about. Then for some of our other Gestalt processors, they sound unintelligible. So they might have a long script that's like cat. And everyone thinks they're jargoning up until they get to that clear word. But that in fact is a full Gestalt. And sometimes they do what I, we call fast forwarding to get to like that part of the script that they actually want to use. Um, other kids have not motorically caught up. Some of our younger Gestalt language processors, they are processing language in these longer chunks and they want to communicate with the longer chunks, but motorically they can't quite do it. And so it does sound unintelligible or full of jargon to us. So it, it presents differently, but I'm, I'm trying to teach people how to look for the signs of what a Gestalt language processor is so that when you do see it, you recognize that right away. And why is that important? Because um, I often say different language development equals different treatment approach. So what is working with our analytic language processors does not work with our Gestalt language processors. So it's very important that we know straight from the get-go how this child is developing language. Yeah, and I think that it's also interesting because we need to kind of reframe the way that we're thinking about kids. So I feel like there's kind of negative associations with scripts. There's a negative association with jargon as if it's not, you know, it's, it's just kind of this thing that we have to deal with um, yep. instead of reframing and thinking like a child is trying to communicate something with us. Let's take that information. And then that's going to, you know, change the way that we work with a child, um, you know, based off of what they're showing us. I'm just a big believer in whenever we're thinking about working, especially with kids with complex communication needs, what is a child already showing you? Like that's where we start mm -hmm. and we build off of that. Um, and I think it's the same approach when you're thinking about Gestalt language processing. It's just this extra layer of information that we have um, to change, you know, the way that we're approaching a child and the way that we're working with them to have more success. Absolutely. Yeah. What a, a great point you just brought up. Um, another big thing I talk a lot about is acknowledge the communication. I think for years, a lot of these kids are looked at in the way you just said, like, oh, this is nonsense or it doesn't mean anything or let's actually get them to say, quote unquote, real words as if what they're doing is not real. <laughs> yes. So uh, the, the very first step is definitely to acknowledge the script. And what I teach people to do is nod your head, smile, say, yeah. If you don't know what it means, those are all great things to do. You can also just repeat what the child said. Um, it doesn't really matter at that point if you know what it means or not. Just acknowledge what they're saying. Um, 
I was actually talking the other day about a child I worked with in the past who did what I call whisper scripting. Mm-hmm. So she would script her breath and you won't be able to hear me if I do it now, but, um, you know, you had to listen really, really closely to hear what she was saying. And, and everyone said to me, we don't know why she's doing it. And she was working with a full school team. And, you know, that was one of the first realizations I had that, you know, this child's scripting has never been acknowledged. And so she just kind of learned to suppress it or to do it under her breath um, because it didn't matter to anyone what she was saying. Um, And I'm happy to say that she moved past that and that her scripts did end up becoming a lot more vocal once they were acknowledged. I think that's such an important point. I actually have a student exactly like this. Um, and I think there's a lot of anxiety that that builds with students who, you know, we're not acknowledging the communication they're showing us um, because, you know, it has to feel like, oh, this isn't right. Right. Like if we're not acknowledging it or it doesn't mean anything. Um, and both those things can be, you know, changed if we start acknowledging, repeating back um, and really validating. I feel like that's such an important thing. You know, if we were communicating all day long and no one was responding to us. Right. Think about that. That would either make us one, not, you know, want to communicate or two, feel like our communication wasn't important or, um, you know, valid. And so I think that that single step alone can be a game changer for kids. Yes, I agree. Okay. So if we're thinking about, you know, Gestalt language processing, I'm sure a lot of listeners out there are like, oh, wow, like I have a lot of students and I'm thinking about who I think fall into this category. Um, How does it change your treatment approach? Um, You know, obviously, as speech language pathologists typically taught in graduate school, how to work with analytic language processors. We build one step at a time. Um, You know, so how does that change your approach when you're like, okay, this child actually isn't an analytic language processor. They're actually using a lot of gestalts. Um, What do you do when you have that information at hand? Yeah, great question. So um, this is something that I teach in depth on my course, but I do try to give a lot of free information on social media. And what Marge Blanc did create is the Natural Language Acquisition Framework. And she called it natural language because kids that are gestalt processors pick up language through listening. So the whole approach is language modeling and understanding what stage of echolalia the child is at. So there's four main stages. There's actually six, but the last two go into advanced grammar. So I talk about the main four stages. So the first stage is echolalia. It's everything we've already mentioned. It's those full scripts. It's the longer chunks of language. Stage two would be mixing and matching or moving around partial gestalts or partial scripts. So if a child has like, let's go outside now as their full gestalt in stage one. And then they also say something like, want some water. Stage two might be mixing and matching those scripts. Like, let's go some water. That might be a mix and match that they might do in stage two. So they're learning that they can move around chunks of language. Stage three is what I call the magic stage. And that is when they start to understand that words are units. So that's actually a first step for our analytic processors, but it's actually a third step for our gestalt processors. 
And so at this point, they are singling out words and are really understanding they can stand alone or they can be combined with other words. And stage four is when we start getting into beginning grammar and actually hearing novel original language. So I always say the ultimate goal is to get to original or self-generated language. We don't want a child to feel stuck in communicating with only the words that they have picked up from others. So the whole treatment approach is basically helping them get as many gestalts as they need in stage one. So they can then break them down and mix and match them in stage two, and then get them to stage three, where they can actually take the words out and single them out. And again, I go in depth on how to do all of this, but it's through child-led play-based therapy and it's through language modeling. We take a lot of language samples. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just want to address that analytic language piece because a lot of parents now have taken my course and are in my membership and they'll say, oh, but the speech pathologist was trying to give them carrier phrases or to expand on their utterances and things. And it it seemed like it was working in the beginning, but then it didn't work anymore. Mm -hmm. And so I call that, you know, stuck. And I always use that in quotations, but a kid, you know, is picking up all this stuff. We're feeding them from the analytic approach, but then they're stuck. They can't actually get to that original language because Mm -hmm. we're not actually helping them break it down. Mm -hmm. So I have a question about that. So, you know, I think this makes a lot of sense when you have a child who has a lot of kind of self-generated gestalts and it's like they have, you know, uh, perhaps uh, a script for this thing and that thing. And, um, you know, you're able to kind of analyze what's happening. I think the language sample is so important here. I mean, it's important everywhere, but it's especially important here. Um, you know, knowing what they said and in what context to kind of figure out if there's meaning behind it and what that meaning is. Um, and then, you know, obviously, you know, mitigating those gestalts and showing how we can be flexible with them. Um, but what if you're trying to teach a novel concept, like for example, like going somewhere. So Mm -hmm. say, you know, a child that you at least have observed, you don't see any type of, um, you know, meaningful gestalt for that. And you're like, oh, wow. Like they, they're constantly wanting to go outside and go, it feels like a great language opportunity. Um, how would you approach that situation? Is it something like you only build off of whatever, you know, self-generated gestalts a child showing you, or would you teach a gestalt, um, you know, to that student, would you, you, can you use an analytical approach? Like how would you approach a situation where there's a novel kind of communication or opportunity or idea? How would you approach that when you know for certain that a child is a gestalt language processor? Yeah. So that's actually part of stage one. So we want to give the child more gestalts because the majority of the scripts or gestalts that a child is using that they've picked up from their environment are usually not serving them well. Mm -hmm. Um, so they are not, you know, be able to express their thoughts or get some wants and needs met through whatever they've picked up. Um, this kind of is a good, um, place for me to talk about why kids pick up certain gestalts. Yes. So gestalt language processors, um, 
usually pick up like the most dramatic emotional gestalts. There is always a connection to their episodic memory or their emotional memory. Um, And, you know, recently I've gotten a lot of questions about, you know, kids that have scripts with cuss words. And so why have they picked those up and how do we get rid of them? And I know people are always disappointed when I say you can't get rid of them. You actually have to figure out why they picked up that script. And likely it's because it was very dramatic. Mm -hmm. And so we then have to give them something else that gets them that same reaction. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I talk about this kind of therapy being a lot of thinking on your feet. And so we kind of don't come in there with this whole plan about teaching X, Y, and Z, but you know, we do the detective work and figure out what something is. And then we try to present something else in that way that is really going to be fun and dramatic and emotional for the child so that they are taking in and picking up the gestalts we're teaching. So you're talking about a kid that wants to go outside. The desire is already there. Mm -hmm. So what I would do is choose a target gestalt that is easy to mitigate later in stage two. Mm -hmm. And I, I go through all of this, like, how do you pick ones that are easy to mitigate? And so let's go back to the one I used earlier. Let's go outside now. Okay. So maybe that's what you decide to present. Mm -hmm. And so you are going to naturally model that in as many situations as you can, when you're with the child, Mm -hmm. you might show some variety there too, but you're constantly bringing in the target gestalt. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, eventually the child will pick it up. Um, And, you know, this podcast is not long enough for me to like troubleshoot why some kids might not pick it up. Right. But so that is our ultimate goal. So we're giving them what they need. And I have like a lot of handouts in my course that help people sort of determine like what categories um, all these gestalts fall under and then how to know a child has enough before you move on to stage two. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, that's that's how we would handle it. We would actually give them the language for what is happening in their environment, but always presenting it as a script. Okay. This is really awesome. I'm super excited. <laughs> I feel like, cause it's not, that's not where most people's brains would naturally go. I think they no. kind of resort back to this analytical thing, right? They're like, mm-hmm. and I will continue to build one step at a time. Um, and so I think that's really important. It's like, okay, we need to actually teach more scripts, which I think is counterintuitive to a lot of people. Um, I think until that, they understand the process, <laughs> right? Exactly. Until they understand, like we have to kind of rethink the way that we're doing things for kids. Um, mm-hmm. and I, I like that you mentioned this idea of um, something being emotionally charged. Um, and so I think that's oftentimes why uh, we see kids who are scripting from movies because they're highly motivated and excited. Like I put Toy Story on and my kids are like bouncing up and down because they're so excited. Um, So again, there's that kind of emotionally charged piece. I'm not surprised that they're, you know, pulling, you know, scripts from that movie or whatever exciting thing. Um, I've also seen kind of similar to what you're saying. um, I've actually heard scripts. um, You could tell that like a child was perhaps like being disciplined or yelled at at school and those come out. Um, And so I think that the common thread there is that emotional piece um, and how can we use that to our advantage and really think through that lens when we're thinking like what gestalt are we actually going to teach um, that are really meaningful and powerful to children? 
Yes, absolutely. A couple examples um, followers have shared with me recently. A mom was outside doing gardening and some giant bug came and she shrieked, ah, there's a bug. And now she said every time her son walks outside to that spot in the lawn, he goes, there's a bug. And obviously she was, you know, emotional in the moment and loud and dramatic. And Mm -hmm. so that's why that script stayed with him. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. And I think, again, I think we can kind of play around with that when we're doing therapy with kids and Mm -hmm. we can be super dramatic and then we can kind of teach that, um, like how to mitigate that and how to vary it to have different meanings. Um, And so I think that's a really important point that I hadn't thought about until you started talking about it. And I was like, oh my gosh, my wheels are turning thinking about all the students that I've worked with um, and, you know, why they're scripting in the first place and what, you know, makes something more enticing, I guess, to stick script wise. Yes, definitely. And that's why this also kind of connects to why I always talk about child led therapy. So None of this is going to stick if we're doing traditional, what I call traditional tabletop speech therapy, and we're flashing cards and we've got papers and laminated things. Mm-hmm. Um, nope. I am all about get down on the floor, figure out what that kid is into. You need to do your whole session outside or in a gym or figure out what level of play that child's at. And I talk about older kids too. So Mm -hmm. play obviously means different things for older kids, hobbies Mm -hmm. or sports or cooking or baking, but we want to do what is interesting to that child um, and not something the adult has planned because we could actually follow the NLA framework till we're blue in the face with a kid sitting at a table and it may never stick with them. Mm -hmm. because it's just not in their interest area. And so, you know, I talk a lot about, I don't plan sessions. I get things out that kids are interested in. And then I watch to see what they gravitate toward. And then here comes the thinking on your feet part. I'm thinking, what stage are they at? What am I modeling for them? What are our target gestalts right now? And yeah, I'm dramatic and I'm trying to be exciting and I'm trying to make some of these stick for them. Um, and so again, I don't think any of that would work if I was like, let's sit down at the table and I cut out these laminated pieces for you. Listen, I think that, you know, you're, you're speaking to a broader issue, which is like, let's give kids the tools to talk about the things they're excited to talk about, because otherwise we're just like pushing against a wall. And, you know, even if a child can memorize language to go with whatever activity that you're doing, like the likelihood of that generalizing to spontaneous language is so low. Um, And so we really need to, we need to find things that kids are excited to talk about. Um, And it's especially true with complex communicators, which kind of leads me into my next question. Um, you know, obviously this is a podcast dedicated to AAC. We work with a lot of kids that also have verbal speech. You know, a lot of the kids in my practice, I'm doing AAC with them and they also are gestalt language processors. And I know that because they, you know, have verbal speech and I'm able to hear some of the scripts and echolalia and all those things. Now, knowing how prevalent, especially gestalt language processing is for autistic students and individuals, 
how do we approach a child who is non-speaking mm-hmm. and how does that perhaps, you know, change what we're doing on the AAC piece? Um, and I know that, you know, you, we don't know, right. There's no yes. really good research. Yep. We talked about mm-hmm. it before we recorded, like, I wish we knew better about how to support individuals who are Gestalt language processors and AAC. Um, I also think that AAC developers develop AAC systems through the lens of analytic language processing, they do. Yes. Um, which is problematic, right? Um, so anyway, I want to like kind of lead into this discussion about what do we do when we don't know um, right. whether or not a child is a Gestalt language processor or are there ways when a child has very limited verbal uh, speech um, to know? Yeah, so I'm actually going to pull it up right now so I could read from it, but I wrote a post with um, Kate McLaughlin from the AAC Coach all about this. Because yes, right now, analytic um, language processors are who AAC devices are designed for. So we're always talking about robust vocabulary and all these single words. And we know now from our discussion that that doesn't work for our Gestalt processors. And some may initially make some progress with the device, but then I hear a lot of they're stuck. It's just, they're always choosing these single words. We're not combining the words now, or they're stimming. And I love your podcast episode with Laura Hayes about stimming. Um, And so we get a lot of this from people basically telling us, oh, the AAC device isn't working for them. So um, Kate and I talked about some clues that you, you know, might see with a child using an AAC device, because obviously you brought up children that are non-speaking, Rachel. So as SLPs, we want to give them a way to communicate. So we're going to go to the AAC device. So what clues are we going to look for to see if they're gestalt processors? Well, First of all, if they're non-speaking, what what do we hear them say? Is it does it sound like jargon? Because mm-hmm. that might be a sign that they're scripting a gestalt. Secondly, what are they doing with their device? And you AAC experts could speak more to this than I can, but we want to do that detective work with the device. So how are they using it? Are they following the pattern of someone that's a Gestalt language processor? Mm -hmm. Okay, so what do we do then? This is like the big burning question out there right now. And Marge Blanc is actually working with a team of AAC experts. Um, And I got to get you in on the discussion. Rachel, she's got this Facebook group going and they're kind of trying to like figure all this out right now. Um, But one of the tips that Kate had shared was um, if if we do hear some scripts from them, inputting those into the device. Mm -hmm. Or if we feel like we're seeing the signs from them that they are Gestalt processors, actually inputting scripts rather than starting with single words. Mm -hmm. Um, And so those were a couple of suggestions that she gave. Um, You know what? Actually, Instagram has been wonky all day today. And I pull this post up and I'm like, I know I'm forgetting something, but I can't pull this post up. Same thing happened to me. Don't worry. I was like, is Instagram broken? (laughs) I think something's going on with it. I agree, which means a lot of people are probably committed to it. They're like, I remember that day Instagram didn't work. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, I, what's interesting um, to me is 
you know, I think I, I, I kind of have conflicting opinions about this because I feel like at one level we're trying to, you know, input a, a, a gestalt or a script. Let's make it easier for the AAC user and the student to hear the language, to have a single, you know, a single touch or maybe just a few touches to get to that script. Um, and what I like about it is that we know oftentimes AAC users and a lot of the students that we work with are visual visual learners. And so the visual aspect of an AAC system, I think, is really helpful. Um, but then I wonder it feels harder in the later stages to kind of mitigate those gestalts from a motor planning perspective. Because mm -hmm. if I go to, you know, chat and I say a phrase, but then all of a sudden I'm trying to only use half that phrase and, you know, mitigate with some, some other phrase or something else, then it feels like we've kind of lost some, some time in learning of the motor plan. Cause now I have yep. motor plan something different. So that's and Rachel, this is where it gets so incredibly tricky because yeah. this approach is very individualized as well. Yeah. Um, and so I, I have mentioned about a hundred times this detective work piece. Yeah. So we don't want to automatically give kids scripts that they're not connected to. There's no emotional connection. Totally. So how do we know what to put into their device? And then how do we know that they're ready to start mixing and matching those mm -hmm. scripts? And then how do we do that with the device? Um, so yeah, this is kind of a complex topic that I hope some of these people working on it could, you know, eventually come up with a solution for. Um, well, and maybe you know. it's just like, we're at a stage right now where the technology doesn't support us, right? And so we need mm -hmm. AAC manufacturers who create these speech generating systems to start thinking through the lens of a different type of approach. Yeah. Um, and perhaps it's an opportunity here. I mean, the good news is we have a lot of AAC manufacturers who listen to this podcast. <laughs> so I'm, I'm doing a, a call out to you guys, start creating yeah. something that really takes this approach into consideration because um, it really does feel like a challenge, but it feels like a challenge that perhaps the technology can solve that problem yeah. for us. Um, because right now we're kind of limited with the analytical approach um, to language acquisition through these AAC systems. Um, I have a question because this comes up oftentimes for me. Um, a lot of families will say like, oh, that's not functional. Um, like I just did an observation the other day and the child kept saying, um, don't touch, don't touch because she didn't, she wanted to say stop. Mm -hmm. uh, that was the intention. And, you know, I was like, oh, like she's saying, don't touch. And they're like, oh, that's just a script. I was like, well, right now she's pushing your hand away to like say, stop. I don't want you to touch my Play-Doh. <laughs> and so yeah. it was interesting. It was kind of an aha moment for the family. So in that situation where, you know, child saying, don't touch, you know, is it okay to then give the language you can tell me stop, um, even though that's a single word or how would you approach a situation like that? Um, is it okay to give, I guess I'll call it replacement language for something that doesn't feel like it's anything related. Sometimes I feel like the scripts don't feel anything related to like the actual language that could be convey a lot of meaning for a child. Um, so what do you do in a situation like that? Yeah, thanks for bringing this up. Um, this is a huge, important piece when it comes to Argus Schalt processors. So I always teach, don't take what they're saying literally. And this is really hard for our kids that are using scripts that seem in context or seem like they should be taken literally. Yeah. When I'm talking about a movie script, people are like, oh, yeah, 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 that doesn't mean that. Because those words to right. them should not be taken literally. But mm -hmm. when you've got a child saying, don't touch, or I need a blanket, 
that's like, oh, well, you need a blanket. Here you go. Or you don't want me to touch that. But sometimes those things that seem like they're conveying um, a certain meaning to us actually mean something very different for the child. Mm. So I actually had a little boy in here last week who kept saying that's a blue ball. And I had a talk with his mom about the fact that he actually didn't want the blue ball. Like this was likely tied to some other experience he had with a ball. And that's Mm -hmm. how he picked up the script because Mm -hmm. how did I know he actually didn't want the blue ball? His mom kept handing it to him and he was shrieking. (laughs) And so she was getting frustrated. Like, but you just said that's a blue ball. So again, this detective piece, it's like, where did this script come from for your student? Why is she saying don't touch? Likely some adult told her that. It had a lot of emotion connected to it. It's now her script for, I don't want that, get that away from me or Mm -hmm. stop doing Mm -hmm. that. I teach not to teach replacement language only because we are not always 100% sure what that script means to them. And Mm -hmm. I actually have a really good video showcasing this in one of my modules where this is before I knew what I was doing. And I'm so glad I caught this on video because yeah. I think everyone should learn from our mistakes, right? 100%, yes. <laughs> and so I show this video and I'm trying to give this girl replacement language. I'm like, it's stuck, it's stuck. And she's just repeating her script over and over again. Like, you don't get me, lady. You're not understanding me. I don't want to say it's stuck. And so finally it occurred to me, I'm just going to repeat what she says. So I said her script, oh, the truck got stuck in the mud. And she's like, yeah, and looked right at me. Like, yes, wow, you got, you got it. And I had no clue what that meant. I ended up finding out later from her mom that it was from a YouTube video. And she was actually trying to ask me, like, why is this stuck? Like, why is it not coming off? Mm-hmm. And I, ca- I knew it was something with stuck. Mm -hmm. So I kept saying it's stuck, it's stuck, and she would not accept it. So that's why I caution people about the replacement language, because in that situation, Rachel, maybe you could have said stop. But what if that isn't exactly what she wanted to convey? Mm -hmm. Then the frustration would have just elevated for everyone, you, the parents, her. So my advice in that kind of situation is to actually just repeat her script and let her know you heard her. You have Mm -hmm. some grayish idea of what that might mean. And mm-hmm. then later, maybe you and the parents do the detective work. Like, where do you think that script came from? What do you think that means from her and play around with it? I tell parents to like present a few different things you think it might be. Mm-hmm. And then that kid, they will look at you. They will give you that bingo eye contact or they will repeat your words or they will say, yeah. And then you know that you got it. Mm-hmm. And I have a couple cute videos like this on my Instagram page where It sounds like a bunch of jargon, but the Mm -hmm. parent figured out it was a song and they started singing it. And then you just see that little boy's face turn and he smiles like, yeah, I was singing that song. Yeah, that's amazing. And I think the the kind of the takeaway here is that we need to have really consistent, open conversations with families about the kind of origin of these scripts. And I think that that sometimes it's probably challenging because it's like, oh, they've been saying it for years. Like, I don't know where they got it. Um, But the moment we can kind of figure out in what context it was learned, it feels like it's easier than to one, figure out the intent behind it. Um, And two, it just gives us more information about what's actually trying to be conveyed. um, Mm -hmm. And that helps us, you know, from a therapy standpoint. 
Mm-hmm. Amazing. I could talk to you all day. I feel like I have to have to come back on. Once we get more information about, you know, AAC and gestalt language processing, yes. hopefully Marge is like doing amazing things with all of these, you know, <laughs> AAC experts and manufacturing, you know, of AAC gets better. We'll have you back on. For yes. people who are like, yes, Alexandria, everything you're saying is resonating with me. Where do I learn more? I want you to talk a little bit about uh, your course and your membership and all those things and where people can find you if they need, they should find you because we all need to learn more about this as a field. <laughs> um, but tell us a little bit about what that looks like. Yes. So everything is housed at MeaningfulSpeech.com. You can hop on there right now. I have an awesome freebie that's like a one page sheet to explain all of this to parents and staff that you can just easily download and hand out. Um, And then my entire course is housed on there. I have a super active membership forum where myself and another um, Gestalt expert, Katie Arnold, are on there answering questions. So people could even post language samples and all kinds of things on there. We have a lot of discussion going and it's, it's housed on there. So not a social media site. And then um, I also do monthly lunch and learns with different guest speakers um, that come on with a topic related to gestalt processing. And those are recorded for on-demand viewing later. Um, Instagram, I'm at Meaningful Speech. I'm most active there. I do have a Facebook page. I'll admit I don't really do much on there. Um, Me too. Me too. I I neglect Facebook. (laughs) So it pretty much shares what I've shared on Instagram. Um, And so, yes, I post a lot of info on there. I'll show myself doing therapy, both in-person and teletherapy. Um, And then I do want to mention other resources that are out there. So Marge Blanc has her book, Natural Language Acquisition on the Spectrum, that was published in 2012. The best place to get that is either through Communication Development Center or Northern Speech Services. She also has some courses on Northern Speech Services, and she and I, along with Dr. Lillian Stiegler, have um, an ASHA webinar that is available on Learning Pass. Um, I always tell people if they want to go in depth to go to my course, because I will literally walk you step by step through all of this. But if you don't have time or you're an SLP that just wants to pick up like some quick CUs, definitely check out the ASHA learning pass um, classes. I think this is an area of our field that is so like grossly misunderstood. And I am super excited that you know, the work you're doing is uh, being shared with so many, you know, SLPs. I think social media is such a great tool to share, um, you know, short bite-sized chunks of information that can help build, you know, these ideas over time. Um, I'm really excited to share this episode. I'm really excited for your course. Um, I actually think I'm going to sign up my, my, my team because I feel like this is something that we work with. I mean, I specialize in, uh, children with autism and it's something that's so prevalent in our practice. Um, and I just think it's important that we start learning how to approach it differently. Um, so I'm really excited to share all of your resources, Alexandria, and thank you so much for coming on this podcast. We will link to all of your resources on our show notes. So you guys definitely check it out. Um, follow her on Instagram at meaningful speech. Um, and thank you again for coming on and sharing all your expertise and all your clinical knowledge. Um, you've been doing this for a long time and you can tell that you are, you know, in the trenches with us SLPs (laughs) working clinically with kids every day. Um, and I'm really excited to share all the gems of wisdom that you had with our audience. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Rachel.
Of course. So for Talking With Tech, I'm Rachel Meadle, joined by Alexandria Zakos. Thank you guys so much for listening, and we'll talk to you guys next week. 